We are walking through a series right now uh, called Life Apps, and, uh, and I shared with you in week one, this is a series that I pulled from, uh, from a pastor friend of mine, I talked to him about it, uh, sharing resources at one point, and, and excited to do that. Some of you have asked, do you do series? Do you preach line by line? Do you, what do you do? And my answer is always, yes, we do all of those things, and, and uh, this series has really been challenging for my heart. I hope it has been challenging for yours as well, but we've been talking about this incredible truth that application really, really, really matters. And it's funny because even way back in the early church, the very first church that popped up, James was one of the pastors, one of the leaders of the early church. And he recognized right from the beginning that church folks were gonna get this wrong. And so he wrote a letter to help us understand that. And 2,000 years later, guess what? Church folks are still struggling to get this one right. Here's what happens. And it was happening 2,000 years ago, and it happens today. We feel really, really good about getting to church. In our church world today, it's like an accomplishment. Come on now. Some of you, I got three little ones to get our kids in the car, dressed, with matching socks on, two shoes, not just one. Maybe we crammed a muffin down them, and we're so excited. Some of you are like, a muffin? Man, you guys are doing well, <laughs> right? Whatever it is, you're taking a handful of gummy bears, whatever it takes, right? We got, them, we got them into the car, we got to church, we got them dropped off, and then we got into the seat, and we're like, God, look what I have accomplished. I've done it. And then if the preacher has done his job at all, he's talked about something that maybe stirred in you an emotional response like, oh, that was good. And to us, that is like a religious experience. We get in the car and we're like, oh, we have done it. We have accomplished what God's called us to do. We got into the car. We made it there. Not only did we make it there, we were able to listen long enough to emotionally go, yeah, that's really good. And we're like, that was it. We nailed it. You guys are giggling because you, some of you are feeling like, man, that's exact. Like if I could even just get to there, I'd be so happy, right? And, and we have in, in many ways created that as the epitome, the goal of our faith. And James, 2,000 years ago, saw the same kind of thing happening, where it became like a spiritual experience to hear truth and get there. And somehow we missed <laughs> the other piece of that, where God says, Jesus initially said, if you hear these words of mine and you put them into practice, that there was an application piece that came with hearing the truth. So James says it this way in James chapter one. He says, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. What does that say? Oh, we have to try that again. Let's read it together. Don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Yeah, ouch. That's hard, Pastor Mike. Do you understand? It was like crazy. I'm just so glad I'm here. Just take the, you know, take that and enjoy it. <laughs> and uh, James like, nope, that's deception. It's pretty funny. Anyone ever, um, I've done this, so I'll just say it. Anyone ever go out and purchase a piece of workout equipment that they didn't really use? I'm just, can we have a transparent moment here? 
I got a treadmill in my garage. It wasn't even assembled until we moved. It was in my house in a box for a year. 12 months. Guess what didn't happen to me when that treadmill was in the garage in a box? I didn't get in any better shape. A treadmill in the garage is not going to get you anywhere. Just like hearing some truth, if you don't jump on the, oh, come on now, that was better than you. If you don't jump on the treadmill of this word and actually start putting it into practice, you can stare at it. Uh, How about this? Some of you got some do-it-yourself home improvement projects that you bought. You got a can of paint somewhere, right? And you've been like, my kitchen's going to be beautiful. And that can of paint is still there. And that can of paint is good. Hopefully still. I don't know how long pain is good for, how long it's been sitting there, but it's good. But until, come on now, until you stir that, shake that thing up, stir it, put a paintbrush in there and apply it to the wall, there has been no transformation. And that's the principle James wants us to understand. The can of paint's good, the treadmill's good, the word is good. It's alive, it's active. It can heal, it can restore, it can do things. So use it, use it. So that's been the point of this whole series is that we have to move from just hearing the word and deceiving ourselves and actually do what it says. So last week we dove into forgiveness and we talked about the forgiveness app and how to actually apply forgiveness. And uh, if you didn't catch that, it's on the podcast. You should listen to that. It was pretty, um, pretty solid. The Lord just, I think, broke through some things. And, uh, and I gotta be honest, I really, really consider skipping this one because I don't like this one at all. And I don't like this one at all because I like hearing about this, but doing this one is really hard. You see, let me tell you a story. When I was uh, in eighth grade, I told you a couple of eighth grade stories because those were good times for me. I, uh, I had a little paper route and I was making a little money. In our church, I was a new Christian. Our church was going on a trip. You guys heard about the youth trip Ignite coming up. Every kid should go on that trip. I went on that trip. Back in the day, it was called Youth Fest. And uh, I was going to Youth Fest, and it was down in Los Angeles, California. And uh, I was really excited. I had a little paper out. I was saving my money. Uh, My parents were like, you know, hey, things are privileges. You want to do the privilege. You earn it. Great. I'll make some money, and then I'll quit my paper route because they won't give me the time off to go, so I'll do it. I'll do it right up until then, and I made some money, and I paid for the trip, and I was so excited to go on this trip, and I was going to go, you know, get this opportunity to hear about God and a new place and a road trip. We were living in Northern California, so it's like a six-hour road trip for us. We had broken down vans, so it was like a 12-hour uh, road trip for us. <laughs> Come on, you, if you haven't been on a road, uh, youth trip, if you haven't broken down a little bit, and so... So I saved the money. My parents, my, well, my dad, let's be specific, was like, I'm not paying for that. And I was like, will you stop me from going if I raise the money? He's like, do whatever you want. And so, so I raised the money to go. I was so excited. Now, what I didn't think about, because I'm in eighth grade, is I'm going to need some spending cash beyond just the trip. And I quit my paper out. Now I didn't have spending cash. And so my mom, to the rescue, comes in and says, listen, you worked really hard for this. I want to give you some spending cash so that you can have a good time on this trip. And she gives me a hundred bucks. Yeah! <laughs> Are you kidding me? That was like a man, I'm eighth grade. And this is like a million years ago. So that was like $5,000 <laughs> in 
based on inflation. No, okay, not quite that. But <laughs> she gives me a hundred bucks and she says one thing about it. She goes, just pick me up something little while you're out there and you know, do something sweet for your mom. And I'm like, yeah, I'll do it. I'm giving her a hug. I'm all emotional. I'm like, yeah, I got a hundred bucks, right? So in my eighth grade brain, a hundred bucks was never going to run out. That was like an unlimited amount of money, right? Well, for the first time, I learned how short a hundred bucks will stretch when you're on a trip, right? So we're on this trip, and I'm like magnanimous. I'm like, oh, come, I'll pay, I'll pay for things. I got all this money. And, you know, I'm making friends that I never had before. I had a hundred bucks. And, uh, and we're hanging out and having fun. And, and uh, teenagers, they, they used to sell music on these little discs called CDs, Old folks, you know, they were eight tracks, but I was in the CD area, era, <laughs> and I'm buying CDs, and I'm buying cool things, I'm buying t-shirts, I got my hundred bucks. So we get to the last day of the trip, and we're going to Disneyland, right? Awesome. We get in the park, and I got like, you know, maybe five bucks left or something like that. It's, I've just burned through this, burned through this money, and, I, and all of my buddies are buying like little ears, because, you know, that's what you do in your eighth grade, and I have enough to get these ears, and I buy them. It's like, awesome, and as soon as I buy them, I remember my mom. I'm like, oh, I wonder if she'll like these used ears, <laughs> right? Nah, probably not. So the whole time I'm at Disneyland, I'm running around with my little group of buddies, and, and I'm thinking, I didn't get anything from my mom. So I'm walking through one of the gift stores and I'm just ah, thinking about it, thinking about it. And I see this keychain, and it's got like a L on it. And her mom, my mom's name is Laura. And I'm like, that would be really cool. And I look on the back and it's like $6.95. Not to this eighth grader. <coughs> Dropped it, kicked it out the door, waited around, stole it on a youth trip, $6.95. Gave it to my mom like a hero. <laughs> mom, I got you something. She's all emotional. Her eighth grade son's all thoughtful. And I just wear that like a badge of honor for years. Years. Doesn't even phase me. No big deal. Now, fast forward. I'm in my 20s and I'm leading a youth group event. I'm Pastor Mike. And I'm walking through a Disneyland event. And I'm walking through the store and I see a keychain and it's got an L on it. And all, it's like a thunderbolt. I just remember, I'm, all of a sudden I'm an eighth grader again. I'm like, oh no, you didn't. You stole that and you know it and you never admitted it and you never made it right. So I take this keychain. Now it's like $14.95, <laughs> right? Thank you, Disneyland. And I walk to the front and I tell the lady, I'm like, listen, I need to pay for this, but I'm not gonna take it. She's like, what are you talking about? And I said, when I was in eighth grade, I stole one of these. She's like, what? And I was like, I just need to pay and leave it here because that's what I did. I was in eighth grade and I stole one of these and I paid my, well, $16 after tax or whatever it was. <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> and I left it there and I had to confess. And then, come on now, I called my mom. Uh, come on now, it got worse, right? And I said, Mom, I just need to let you know what I did when I was in eighth grade. <laughs> She's like, what? <laughs> I'm like, you proudly displayed that keychain for years as a sign of the sweetness of your son, and I stole it. She was like, honey. I was like, I know. <laughs> what happened? I had to confess it. Today's app is confession and the power that confession has when we actually 
actually do it. You see, there's a thing that happens when we compromise. It begins to erode us on the inside. So I want to talk a little bit about confession. What is confession? Confession is I acknowledge that I did something that, uh, that I, I should not have done. It's actually the first step towards repentance. Confession is actually the first step towards repentance. Now, some of you, when I say the word confession, you have a picture of what confession is. You don't have to uh, wave at me, but you can just smile at me if you have uh, a, a Catholic background in, in the room. Yeah, just smile. Yeah, 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 lots of us. I have a lot of friends that are Catholic and have Catholic background. When I say confession, you have a very strict picture of what confession is, right? You understand, for you, confession is you got you to gotta empty your stuff out to a person, and then they give you a list of things to go do to make it right. Now, those of you that don't have maybe a Catholic background, maybe you have more of a Protestant background, you're like, hey, we're even more spiritual. We take the person completely out of the equation. And confession is when I go to God and I just empty everything out. And here's the picture that we have. It's like we have a sin bucket, right? And we go over here and we just fill that thing up with whatever it is that we want to do, have been doing, shouldn't have done, kind of did. And we get to the end of our day, our week, our month. It starts overflowing. And depending on your church background, you go wherever it is that you think you're supposed to go and you go, here you go. And you dump out your sin bucket. And then it's like, sweet, sin bucket's empty. Relief. And then we feel this overwhelming sense of relief and then we head back over here to our starting point and we go, hmm, yeah, it's fun over here. And we go back this direction. And then we just start piling it into our sin bucket until it hits a point where we're not comfortable anymore. And then we're like, oh, I don't feel good anymore about it. And then we come back over here and we're like, oh, please take that off my hands. And then we come back over here and we do it again and we do it again and we do it again. Can I just just challenge the notion that when I get into this book, there's no picture of that anywhere that I can find in this book. Somehow we have built into our church tradition that that's what confession is, but that picture doesn't exist in here in any place. We just got to have a hard conversation for a minute. Many of us growing up in church world, have gotten this picture. I had this picture that when we confess something, God literally forgets it. And then it's just not, he's just forgotten. Like God, it's so easy to manipulate, right? That we can just be like, oh, you don't remember. And here we go again. Here's, here's just the basic way I can tell you that's not true, okay? That that's not, that's not true. Because there was a guy in the Bible, in the Old Testament named Moses. And you may not know this, but Moses... I don't want to say it in the microphone because God might be listening. And God forgot that. He doesn't know that Moses did that anymore. So don't say it out loud. There's another guy in the scriptures named David. He was a man after God's own heart. He was awesome. One day he was looking over the wall and he saw someone. God doesn't know. He's forgotten it. Don't say it out loud because then he'll remember. We can fast forward to the New Testament. There's a guy named Paul. And there was a guy named Stephen, and they were throwing rocks and killing Stephen for his faith. And, and Paul was there. He was kind of leading it from the religious section. Don't say it out loud. Shh. 
God's forgotten. Some of you are like, wait a second. That doesn't jive with what Sunday school taught me about confession. You see, we have this picture of a God who's somehow in his omnipotence, in his all-knowingness, somehow has forgotten. Now, let me just be honest with you. There's no way. Some of you, the stuff that you've pulled, you can't forget. God couldn't forget that because someone else is reminding him about it all the time. Your mom is talking to God saying, hey, reminding him about it all the time, right? The person you wronged is reminding him about it all the time. So this picture we have, I'm sorry to kind of break this. This is a will it float kind of moment. I'm I'm sorry to kind of break this moment for you. But this picture we have of God as a bumbling, forgetful, easy to manipulate. I don't want to use any derogatory terms about the Lord, but that's what we seem to think of him. That's sinful. To treat the creator of the universe like he's a simpleton is bizarre to me. And the scriptures clearly don't indicate that truth. Man, it got hot in here. I just dropped the mic and let you deal with that, right? (laughs) But that's not what confession is. And that's not what confessions called us to. So I wanna wanna just walk through, I'm gonna take you through a couple, three places in scriptures and just express for you what confession actually is in the Bible. And then you can deal with it. I'll just drop the knowledge and then run with it. And if you're angry at me, shoot me the email. It's fine. (laughs) Real confession is going to God to say, I'm sorry. And then going to the person, come on now, that was offended by our offense and making it right with them. Real confession is not about relieving our conscience. Nowhere in the plight in the scriptures is there a sense that this is how we relieve our conscience. It's about making things right. Let me give you the earliest picture of confession. It's in Numbers chapter five. We're gonna be in Numbers chapter five, then we're gonna be in Luke 19, and then we're gonna be in James chapter five. So if you're, uh, go ahead in your word and like to cheat, that's where we're at. I'm in Numbers chapter five. Now, Numbers chapter five is an amazing picture because what's happened through the story at this point is the Israelites had been enslaved. And for over 400 years, all these generations of Israelites have been enslaved and everything in their life has been detained dictated for them and to them by another culture. And so God has freed them. We had this amazing moment, right? Moses is on the scene. Let my people go, right? Waters have parted. Manna has come from heaven. And this new people group has begun to form an identity. But their previous identity was completely engrossed in, they wake up and someone else tells me how to live. So God is saying, I need to give you some healthy boundaries so that you know what it means to be you who follow me. So it's a beautiful picture of a loving God saying, here's how this works now. You don't have another oppressive group telling you how to live. You actually have a relationship with me. So the first time we ever see confession, here's how it shows up. Numbers chapter five says, the Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, uh, verse six, when a man or a woman wrongs another in any way and so is unfaithful to the Lord, that person is guilty and must confess the sin that he's committed. Let's stop right here. When a man or a woman, that's all of us, 
right? Wrongs another, that's anybody, in how, what kind of way? Whoo! Welcome to the work of confession. When a man or a woman, so anyone, wrongs another person, so anyone, in any way, who are they being unfaithful to? Just let that percolate for a second. Let's personalize it. When I wrong that person that I just wronged, in any way, I have now become unfaithful to God. And I am guilty. Some of you are just feeling that right now. I'm just letting that percolate. That's harsh, but it's true. I'm not making it up. Verse seven, they must confess the sin they have committed. He must make, listen to this R, restitution, full restitution for his wrong and add one fifth to it and give it all to the person that they have wronged. The first time we see confession in the scriptures. The Lord speaks to Moses and says, this is what's gonna be unique. One of the things that's gonna be unique about the people who follow Jesus who follow God, have a relationship with God. We are gonna be the kind of people that when we wrong anyone, we're gonna recognize that wronging them actually because of how much God loves them and values them, we've actually become unfaithful to God by intentionally wronging someone. And so we now have an obligation to confess that. And as we confess that, we actually have to go back and make restitution for what we've done. And not only do we have to make it right from way back in the beginning, God's like, oh yeah, the meter's running on that. Add 20%. Add 20%, one fifth, right? I'm not a mathematician, but I'm pretty sure that's 20%. God's like, hey, you stole that guy's cow. It wasn't your cow, you took it. You need to go make it right. Not just say you're sorry, make it right and you owe him a cow plus 20%. It's going to get bloody. <laughs> but you make it right. <laughs> I don't know how they were figuring it out, the math. Okay, I can't, I can't. I can only speculate. <laughs> but if you've mistreated someone, you've actually been unfaithful to God. Now, we like to split those things out. We like to assume I've mistreated someone, so I've only wronged them. And if I haven't mistreated God, then me and God are cool. God's like, that's not how that works. And these things go together. Verse six, and so he's unfaithful to the Lord and he, he's guilty and he must, this is where the whole idea of confession comes from, confess the sin they've, con, they've, they've committed. And I love this idea of restitution. It's just powerful. You see, there's three components to confession there's restitution, and that comes because of reconciliation, and it all begins when you confess. That's repentance. So let's fast forward to the New Testament. For hundreds and hundreds of years, this culture, the Israelites have been living under this, this model of, if I've wronged you, I have to confess it because I've actually wronged the Lord, and I have to make it right, and I have to add 20%. So for hundreds of years, they've been living that way. You fast forward, fast forward, fast forward, fast forward. Now Jesus is on the scene. I'm in Luke chapter 19. And this is kind of the, the apex of his ministry. He's in hero mode. 
Everywhere he goes, he's like a celebrity. Crowds are following him. People have gotten healed. Miracles are happening. People are listening to the teachings of Jesus. And they're like, he teaches like someone who has authority. What's going on here? This is different. Something has changed. And, and one of the guys in, a, in the town that he walks through goes, I want to see Jesus, but I'm not tall enough to get through the crowds. You know who I'm talking about? Sunday school folks. He was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. I just want you to know the scriptures did not call him a wee little man. So if you meet Zacchaeus in heaven, don't lead with, hey, I know a song about you. I'm not sure how he's going to process that information. I'm just saying. <laughs> the scriptures are belovedly more correct than our church songs. <laughs> uh, sometimes we lose that. Uh, I don't know why it was okay to just make up a song and call him a wee little man. But in Luke chapter 19, something incredible happens. He sees a guy named Zacchaeus. Now, Zacchaeus isn't significant in this town uh, because he's a tax collector. Now, I don't know if we've talked about tax collectors or you've been here when I talked about tax collectors. One of the things you should do is you should go into uh, your Bible app and then search for the word tax collector. And almost every time you see the word tax collector, there is a, a phrase that you see over and over again. And it says tax collectors and sinners. Now, here's why this is important. The Jewish people at this time hated the tax collectors so much that the authors of the New Testament could not lump them into the same category as other sinners. They hated them so bad. There was like murderers, thieves, rapists, killers, and those were all considered sinners. And they had a special category of hate, tax collectors. I'm just saying. Now, here's the reason why that was. I'll give you a short history lesson. At this time, Rome's in control. Rome has come in and invaded. Uh, they have dominated the entire region. And Rome wants to collect taxes. But they also don't want to integrate into every community. So what they do is they offer to the highest bidder the right to collect taxes from each neighborhood. So someone in each community would become a tax collector. That means I'm not Roman, but I live in this neighborhood and I have paid for the right from Rome to become a tax collector in this neighborhood. Now here's why this becomes important. If you were a tax collector, you could take anything you want. Rome would actually back you up with a, with a, um, a, a group of soldiers and they would go, and so you go to your neighbor's house and go, sorry, I didn't do that to the microphone. Hey, it's tax time. And you're like, okay, here's my 10%. No, 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 no. You've had, I've been watching your crops. You've had a good, I'm gonna need 20%. Well, it was only 10% last week. Yeah, yeah, but I want 20%. But it was only 10, um, soldiers. Okay, 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 okay. Here's 20%. And then you just pocket the game. And you would do that to the people you grew up next to, in your neighborhood, around the community. And can you imagine the amount of hate that would get if we were like invaded? Let's imagine, let's see, we're pretty far north. Let's imagine Canada. Canada just invaded us, right? Some of you are like, you can't get there, but just go with me, right? Right? Canada's invaded us and they're, and they're like, hey, we want your money, eh? And they show up at your house. And they're like, you, you need to pay us hey, your money, eh? And they're all being friendly and stuff, but they're taken from you. And you're like, well, I don't have any money. And then your neighbor comes over and goes, oh yeah, they do. They keep it over here. And then you have to give everything. 
That's who these tax collectors were. So they were absolutely hated. So Zacchaeus is one of the most hated people in the town. That's important as you walk through this picture. Luke chapter 19 says, Jesus entered Jericho and he was passing through. And there was a man there by the name of Zacchaeus and he was the chief tax collector and he was wealthy. There was no such thing as a poor tax collector in this time. They were all wealthy. They paid for the right to rob from their neighbors. They were wealthy. Verse three, he wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a wee man, no, (laughs) stop it. Being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. It says, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. It says, so he came down at once and he welcomed him gladly. I want you to see this picture. This is a crazy picture for Jesus who is crazy popular and the crowds are gathering around. They're like, he's a holy man. He's a teacher. There are miracles happening. And he walks by and here's Zacchaeus. And I can imagine them going, oh, we hate that guy. Don't look that way, master. Don't look that way. And he looks up and he sees Zacchaeus and he says, come down. I must eat at your house today. Verse seven, all the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. First of all, can we just say something? Would you just be on the lookout for the mutterers in your life? This is just a freebie. How many of the things, how many of the things that you would do, that God's put onto your heart, you would do, are you worried about doing because of the mutterers? How many of the people you would love, the people you would serve, the places you would go, that you're just like, ah, I'm just not sure that that looks, I'm not sure the optics of this look right. And the mutterers, come on now, are extinguishing the love of Jesus in your life. Don't let the mutterers steal the mission. Don't let the mutterers Real. Jesus never stopped being Jesus because someone with a religious background started muttering, I don't like the way that this looks. I don't like what you're doing here. But we become terrified, come on now, of the judgment or the opinion of the mutterers. And so we don't go where God's called us to go and we don't do what God's called us to do and we don't be Here's the thing that's amazing. Between verse seven and verse eight, we don't even know the story, but there is a radical transformation about to happen in Zacchaeus. And you know what the cause of that is? It's because Jesus walked right past the mutterers, sat down in the home of Zacchaeus and spent time being Jesus with him. Some of us gotta have the courage to walk right past the mutterers, sit down right with the person and just be Jesus with who Jesus loves. That was free. Something happens in verse eight though. It's amazing. It says, but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anyone out of anything, here's that Old Testament principle, I will pay back how much? Four times the amount. Let's stop right there. He goes big. 
He goes way back. Jesus walks through the crowd, sees him, assigns value to him, spends time with him. The experience of being close to Jesus somehow gets into his heart. And this person whose entire life has been dedicated to stealing and amassing for only himself is transformed in a moment. And he stands up from that conversation and says, if I have, now come on, everyone in earshot is like, oh, yes, you have, right? You have, look at this place. We know who you are, okay? Yes, you have. But he's magnanimous. He's like, if I have done it, I will not only give it back, but four times the amount restitution, restitution. And then Jesus says, listen, don't worry about going to those people and making it right. You've told me. So we're cool now, fist bump. <laughs> Problem solved. Why are you laughing? Because the words behind me don't say that, do they? That's not what Jesus did. Didn't, Jesus didn't just high five. I'm like, I'm so glad you've had this emotional breakthrough and you feel better. High five, that's the goal. I just wanted you to spend time with me so you feel better. No. Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. Jesus says, yeah, do it. Run, your life is transformed. Change has come. Salvation has come to your household. This is amazing. There's breakthrough. Go run, do it. Jesus isn't like, don't worry about it. We're cool now. Go do it. Verse 10, for the son of man has came to seek and to save what was lost. You know what's, inside of the uh, story there that we probably could assume safely. Zacchaeus is done stealing. He's done cheating people. You don't go back and pay people back four times the amount of what you stole and then go, okay, let's start this train again and begin stealing all over again, right? God is always concerned about the actual transformation that happens. Repentance should lead to change. Confession should lead to repentance. And that repentance requires change. It's not I dump out my sin bucket and then I go back and do the same behavior. That's why confession is so important. It breaks us free. That's the principle that happens in scripture. Let's fast forward to James. James chapter five. James, we've established the brother of Jesus. Beginning in verse 13, he says, hey, is any of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well and the Lord will raise him up. And if he sinned, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to who? each other and pray for each other so that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. When you read this in context, James is saying, you have a community that you're a part of. And when you want to confess, when the Lord has surfaced, when prayer is happening and life change is happening and something that's in your life that shouldn't be in your life is there, you were designed to be in a network of people that you can say, hey, I've blown it. 
and I need your support and I need your prayer and I need you to be Jesus as I'm trying to be Jesus and I need us to come together and I need that. James is saying that's how confession breaks you free. Do you see the difference between that and I just go, mm, dump it out and hope God forgets and start over again? Confession needs that to be in there. Here's the problem. Secret, secret sin, it, it, it's like splinters. It gets into us. It gets into our lives and it needs to come out. If you've got a splinter, you can't just go, dude, I'm cool. If you don't deal with it, if you don't get it out, if you don't pull that thing out of your life, eventually the consequences are worse. <laughs> Here's the thing, genuine confession leads to genuine change. I wanna get real personal for a moment. Let me think how where I wanna go. We know people, I wanna just be real. We have a word for someone who says something and does the other thing, right? Who says something out loud, but then never actually changes their behavior and their behavior is different than that. We use it in church world all the time. We just talked about it and will it flow. But, but when you're acting like you're sincere, but you know that you're really not sincere, the, the, the scriptures are clear. We have a word for that. It's, it's a hypocrite. And when we, so, when we go back over and over again and, and, and tell God somehow that, you know, we are sorry. And I'm not saying that we're not sorry. And we go to that place and we say, okay, good. But are, we know in our heart that we have no intention of bringing change into our lives. We don't actually do what the scripture says. That's hypocritical. That's dishonest. It's not true. So here's the tension. Sometimes we don't fear this is fear-driven why we don't do it. We fear the consequences. We fear the consequences of confession more than we fear the consequences of concealment. Right? There's consequences when we conceal things, but there's also consequences when we confess them. And, and here's the thing. If you're afraid of the consequences of confession and not afraid of the consequences of concealment, it's because you haven't suffered the consequences of concealment yet. No one's caught you. And since they haven't caught you, you're not really afraid of those consequences yet. Let me tell you just a short story. I was pastoring down in Oregon, and I'll call him John, comes to talk to me. And John has been living a double life. He has a family in Oregon, and he has another family somewhere else. And that family is not married to both of them. He's married to this one, but he's told this one that he's separated and doesn't live with them, but he does live with them. And he's raising a kid in two different places. One is a stepkid and one is a, his biological kids. And, and he's got two lives going on. And guess what happened? His two worlds collided. And John, he was a, he was a board member at another church, not, not at my church before he, he came to me. And, and he was like, I've been able to just manage it for so long. I've had these two lives going at once. And now they've collided. I don't know what to do. He's like, I don't want to have any secrets anymore. I'm like, bro, your secrets are out. You missed the window. Come on now. You missed the window of letting that out. Now your secrets have exploded onto the scene and everyone's aware of what's going on here. Here's my point. If we are more afraid of the consequences of 
confession than we are the consequences of concealment. It's just because we haven't been caught yet. Because those consequences are way worse. And the biblical mandate is that there is a way to confess, to admit. (laughs) Here's the thing, God knows. Who are we messing with? Right? And he says, here's what you do. For some of us, it's a person that we've wronged. He says, you wrong the person, you go to the person. And not only do you admit what you've done, you make it right. And as much as it's your ability to do it, you make it right. Sometimes we have stuff and there's not a person who we've wronged. We've just grieved the Holy Spirit of God and ourselves. And James is like, that's why you need a group of brothers and sisters. You need your family of believers to come around you so you can get the support. Come on now. I've got addicts in my family. I know what it's like to go through the process. And I know, come on now, if there's a thing in your life, a cycle, a pattern of behavior that has been rooted into your life, you're not pulling out of that without support. Come on. You need that support. And God designed the church to be the place where you find those relationships, where you have people in your life that you can pull on each other. You can sharpen each other. You can do life together. That's why we're launching another wave of small groups because we just believe that the strength and power that happens when we get together and we believe, come on now, that God's word has to be applied, that we actually do it. We grow. We get stronger. We get free. We become who God's called us to be. James goes on to say, <laughs> Elijah was a man, verse 17, just like us. I, that, I, that's just one of the best scriptures in all of the Bible. Elijah was just a guy. He was like you, he was like me. But when he prayed, things happened. He prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain and then rained on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed and it gave rain. If you don't know the story, it's amazing. Verse 19, my brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth, someone should bring him back. And remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover a multitude of sins. What is he saying? He's like, just remember that we are here for each other and that there's action that comes with it. And there's connective tissue in the body of Christ and we're one and we need each other. Now, there was a part of me that wanted to just go through some basic confession practices to protect us. And you you have to understand not everybody's trustworthy. Okay, not everyone's been in a relationship with Jesus and with you that deserves your confession. So, so you don't, I'm not asking you to be unwise. Let's just give you some practical stuff there, right? You don't want to confess to just anyone. If someone trusts you enough to confess with you, right, you probably owe them at least a stop, pause moment and pray, all right? Don't just be like, okay, cool, thanks for that, right? James is like, and the prayer offered by, so take a moment. If someone trusts you with that, be Jesus. Don't just run from that moment. Stand in the gap for them and support them and love them. That's powerful. You should do that. I wanna give you just quickly how the app works and then we're gonna, we're gonna be done. The app works like this. How confession actually works. First way is this. You actually have to repent. That means you change. You turn from the thing that you were doing. You're, you express the remorse. You actually go through the process. The second thing is you, you reconcile. You actually go to the person, right? Not do you, only do you just make it right with God. You get the support of the person that you wronged. You go back to them. You deal with it. And the last thing is restitution. That's how the app works. That's how you break the hold, the chain. When you make it right and you go all the way to the end and you say, I'm done with this. 
I don't want it to have any hold in my life. Can you imagine if we activated that in our lives? Can you imagine the freedom we would experience if we weren't holding on to these patterns? If we weren't in a pattern of self-deception and hypocrisy that says, well, at least I feel better about it because I tossed it over the side of the ship, even though I know full well that I'm gonna head right back over here and keep doing the same things over and over again. God loves you enough to want you to actually experience the breakthrough of true biblical confession. So let me ask you this, what is in your bucket that you keep reloading? What are you holding on to that you're unwilling to deal with and actually confess? What is the thing? Listen, God loves you enough to not leave that in your life. So it's coming out one way or another, right? My prayer for you is that you can experience confession and not the result of concealment. I'll take the consequences of confession all day long. At least it's out. At least I'm moving forward. At least I'm in the light. Come on now, as he is in the light. Would you stand with me? We're gonna pray. And I just wanna, I wanna, wanna be honest with you. I know this is challenging. I know this, some of you have checked out on me. You checked out when I talked about two services and that's okay. Yeah, that was today, remember that? I just want you to be free. God wants you to be free. The next wave of small groups is coming. Some of you need to sign up just so you can get some connection with some people that you can be honest with. Some of you, come on, <laughs> you, you had something surface the moment I started talking about having to go make things right and you have not wanted to make it right and it's time to go and make it right. The pattern of just saying, oh God, it surfaced in my heart again, so here you go. I was mad at that person again or the thing I did I felt guilty about again and you haven't gone to make it right. I'm just telling you, the biblical model of confession is more than that. It's time to actually make it right. Some of you are gonna be challenged to deal with that. Some of you are gonna be the recipients of someone's confession and the world's gonna get way more complicated and good. That's how God designed us to carry each other. That's how God designed us to be in relationship. We need that. We're designed for it, it's good. So God, in this moment, I'm just so incredibly grateful for this family, this body of believers that you've given us to each other, that we could lean into each other's strength. For some of us, <laughs> even just coming clean with you is a huge first step. And I would never diminish the power of just acknowledging before God that we're broken and we need help. So for some of us, we just need to acknowledge that for just a moment. We need your help and we need your strength. And we also need to move from that place because we want freedom and actually go to the place where the wound occurred and reconcile. Some of us have some restitution that we need to do. Some of us, some of us may have to make some job changes after we come clean about what's been happening in that environment. And, and God, you're faithful. And I'd rather do what was right and confess <laughs> than suffer the consequences of having that exposed, what was concealed. Some of us relationally have been hiding things. We've been hiding them from our spouse. We've been hiding them from our family. We've been hiding them from our friends. And we've just been hoping that, that, that by declaring to you what you already know, 
that we keep blowing it, that somehow that will cover it. God, that's not what you want for us. It isn't just a covering. You want freedom. You want to break the hold of what this thing that has in our life. And so you just love us too much to leave us there. I pray for the strength to come clean. I pray for the support and the brothers and sisters to come around us who would pray. I pray for the prayer of the elders that just accomplishes much, that brings healing and restoration and wholeness. And I'm so incredibly thankful for a love that is so big that you won't leave us stuck. You want us to be free. You want heaven to come to earth in us. And so I pray right now, God, that you would just break the hold that sin has in our lives. You would break the chains and the bondage and the patterns and the systems that we would get the support we need to get the healing and the wholeness that is required, God, so that we could be who you've designed us to be, free children of the living God.